Welcome to this new edition of the AOP Educational Podcast. I am Isabel Moreno Hay, and I'm the Program Director of Orofacial Pain at the University of Kentucky. In today's podcast, we will be interviewing Dr. Marcela Romero Reyes, and we will be discussing with her about the headache management in the orofacial pain practice, as well as all the new and exciting therapeutic approaches that we have nowadays available in headache medicine. Dr. Romero is an associate professor and director of the Broadman Facial Pain Clinic at the Department of Neural and Pain Science at the University of Maryland School of Dentistry. She is nationally and internationally recognized expert in the fields of orofacial pain and headache disorders. Dr. Romero is the former director of the NYU Orofacial and Head Pain Clinic and the director of the Advanced Program for International Dentists in Oral Medicine and Orofacial Pain at the New York University College of Dentistry in the Department of Oral and Maxillofacial Pathology, Radiology, and Medicine. Dr. Romero graduated in 1999 from the School of Dentistry at the National Autonomous University of Mexico, UNAM. In 2006, she obtained her PhD in Oral Biology and Orofacial Pain and Dysfunction Certificate at UCLA School of Dentistry. After this, she pursued postdoctoral training in neuroscience with an interest in primary headaches at the UCLA Headache Research and Treatment Program, which nowadays is known as the Goldberg Migraine Program in the Department of Neurology, David Geffen School of Medicine. Dr. Romero is an NIDCR and DOD-funded researcher. Her research involves the study of neuroimmune and nitrooxidative mechanisms in orofacial pain, as well as the discovery of new targets for the management of trigeminal neuropathic pains and headaches, in addition to non-pharmacological approaches. She's a diplomat of the American Board of Orofacial Pain, Fellow of the American Academy of Orofacial Pain, and Fellow of the American Headache Society. She currently serves as the chair of the special section of TMD, Cervical Spine and Orofacial Pain, of the American Headache Society, and as the AOP liaison to the American Headache Society. Welcome, Dr. Romero. Thank you so much for joining us today and for taking your time to talk to us. I thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here today. Dr. Romero, your resume is very impressive. So I wanted to start by asking you what led you in your professional career as a dentist to the field of orofacial pain and specifically to your interest in headaches. Well, it's a long story, but what I can say, it was like a calling. So let me start. So I graduated from the National University of Mexico. And uh, one of the last years, we need to do a lot of uh, clinical care. And, uh, and I saw a patient with trigeminal neuralgia, but at that time, I didn't know about it. And uh, the patient had almost the full quadrant extracted and had just a couple of teeth. And I took x-rays and everything, and, uh, and I, I, um, I didn't understand until one of my professors said, no, 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 this is trigeminal neuralgia. And he explained me, you know, how it was. We sent the patient for a brain MRI, and uh, we started the medication. And for me, it was such a wow, you know, like the part of medicine that 
dentistry has, right? Like was much more in, we know we have it, but that was like in my face. And I saw how grateful the patient he was. And, and I said, oh my God, this knowledge is very powerful, right? And that was one of the ways that, that got me, you know, to, to study more fully this. And also I think, you know, I, what I said and I have said to my residents, I feel like uh, orofacial pain kind of uh, calls me to do. You know, we, we have, we, we can help so many patients. And I know a lot of people do not like to do the work that we do, right? Because it could be very draining and hard sometimes. But I, that is, again, my calling. I, I, I want to do this. I decided to do this. In regards to headache, when I was at UCLA doing my, resident, my residency program, was one of the areas that I really wanted to learn more, but also because I found that was very interesting how the brain operates in regards that headache is a disorder in my view that lets you understand other functions of the brain that not necessarily are pain, but also uh, how different nuclei interact. And I think headache could be a model to understand some of this pattern of, uh, of modulation of the brain that has, and that is what uh, called me also to do that. I can relate to that. I also was very drawn into a facial pain with a case of trigeminal neuralgia that I was able oh, to yeah, observe. Oh, right. yeah, right. Uh, mm-hmm. And you can see how, how you can help patients easily. And, and it, it was very, very similar to, to your experience in my case as well. So why do you think it's important for your residents, for orofacial pain practitioners in general, to receive education in headache medicine? I think it's, it's, it's very important, it's critical. I think all of us, we have already the experience that for the unfortunate uh, population of patients that, uh, that we see, that maybe were the last resort, already they have seen with multiple practitioners, and when they come to us, maybe already have, or they're misdiagnosed, or sometimes they don't even have a, a diagnosis yet, and maybe we're the first ones to really know what really is going on. And we know that headache is very common. So maybe when the patient comes to us and that diagnosis of a typical facial pain actually was, uh, is not temporomandibular disorders, is not trigeminal neuropathic pain, actually it's a headache. And we're gonna be the first ones to know about it. So you see this knowledge is very powerful. And it's critical to really have it in our toolbox to be able to help our patients. And also I would like to add that with anything that we do as an orofacial pain practitioner, this knowledge comes with great responsibility because we need to remember that we're not neurologists and we need to understand our limitations. So the first thing that we need to do really is to, to, the patient comes to us, we know really what is going on or at, least, or at least we have more idea than maybe previous practitioners to do their diagnosis, a differential diagnosis. And when something doesn't feel quite right, or doesn't fulfill uh, the criteria of a primary headache disorder, or sometimes even when I used to say to my residents, even though, of course, everything, every decision that we do is based in, ev- in evidence, right? But sometimes we should tackle to our inner resources. Sometimes if something feels that is not quite right, I will say, 
even if I sound a little bit out there of our intuitions or our sixth sense that is telling us, you know what, I, I, this, I, I need to explore this further, go for it. And help this patient with a proper diagno- uh, with a proper referral to a medical professional or neurologist specialized in headache disorders and uh, in headache medicine. And we can write uh, a medical consult with our impression, our suggestions. So it's, it, I think uh, this could be also another way that we can help these patients. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We see a lot of our orofacial pain patients, right, that will always come with that complaint associated of headaches. So it's a fairly common complaint, uh, definitely, in this patient population. So I wanted to ask you then, what are the red flags that we should be looking into? You mentioned your intuition, but you are somebody that has a lot of expertise <laughs> and you are, you are an expert in the field. But for, for the rest of us that we don't have your level of expertise, what... Well, what you, I don't want to <laughs> pretend that I know everything because I don't. But, but we can the, talk about red flags. Yeah, Absolutely. please. What are the red flags and, and when should we be referring? Yes. And to whom? Do we send them to neurology, to the ER? What, what would be the best referral? So, um, so for, for the red flags, when any patient that we're suspecting a headache disorder, we need to think about that. And we need to determine if the headache is primary or secondary. And I think the first thing that can start to get our brain going is that if the patient comes to us that I never used to have headaches before and now I have this headache, a new headache onset, or doctor, I have the worst headache that I have ever had in my life, those type of of data that we need to, to, to ask or look for. But there is a, a nice uh, help aid. Is a, I don't know if, if, uh, if you have heard about the Snoop uh, mnemonic that talks about, for example, S will come for systemic uh, uh, symptoms. So we need to look for any history of malignancy, any history of immunosuppression, any signs and symptoms of infection that the patient come to us, relating to us that accompany the headache, such as uh, night sweats coming with a headache or, um, or high fever, for example, uh, weight loss, uh, what else I could uh, say? So, uh, or any uh, history of uh, high blood pressure or or headache with, or uh, accompanied with orthostatic hypotension, or headache comes with bradycardia or tachycardia, those type of things that really, you know, will need to be assessed better with a medical professional. Then neurological signs and symptoms. So we need to be uh, really vigilant in this, and I'm gonna explain about that. So let's say that the patient comes to us and tell us like worse symptoms like, or the family member that comes with the patient, no, you know, when the patient with the headache starts, change the personality. So change of those uh, personality or behavior patterns that are very relevant with the headache, as well as diplopia, visual disturbances. I'm gonna talk a little bit more about that. Ataxia, um, sensory loss. Maybe you will think, well, you know, those symptoms could be related to aura, but actually, if we know about aura, precedes the headache and starts gradually and uh, could last maybe 60 minutes. But if the aura is longer or is changing in pattern or is very abrupt, it's better to refer to a medical professional uh, that has you know, uh, the headache expertise to explore further 
and, uh, and do a more comprehensive neurological exam. Also, I think this could be done by a primary, by a primary care physician. But that needs to be explored. And maybe also you will say, well, you know, if the patient presents uh, slurry speech, that uh, I'm not, you know, I know that I can have uh, patients with a stroke, but that, you know, you will, we know how to catch that and where to refer to the ER. But if the patient comes and, tell, uh, and tells you that sometimes those headaches come with a slurry speech and loss of sensation, maybe you can think it's an aura or brainstem uh, migraine, migraine with brainstem aura. But even in those cases, it's a primary headache, even in those cases, it's better that it's, you know, uh, evaluated by by a medical professional, right? We don't want to, you know, miss out things. And maybe they are better here to do a fully more comprehensive neurological exam and do some testing. Um, so SN, oh, onset, new onset of headache, as I mentioned before. A new headache that the patient never uh, presented before, or also a new headache that, uh, that um, is important to check on this because could be related to a cerebrovascular disorder or incident or a, a, a SCF, a CSF uh, leak. You need to think about thunderclap type of headaches. If a patient tells you, doctor, I have never had a, a headache like this and it's excruciating. And you know, when we do the, the, the history, the patient said that it's a crescendo pain within minutes and, uh, and maybe can have some neurological also deficit together with this, you will need to think that maybe it's a cerebrovascular problem going on. Normally, I will say I have never seen those cases. I have had patients that have told me that they have a thunderclap headache. They needed to go to the ER because they have an aneurysm or what's a risk of subarachnoid hemorrhage. But also it's good to, to think about if it's a, a new onset and the the pattern of these headaches are changing. Think about those things. Um, what else? Also, in response to whiplash coming from the neck, could have a, a dissection, a, a vessel dissection in that level that could lead to thunderclap headaches or similar to that. Always is good to have a good workup uh, or refer to have a more fully workup about those. Um, old age, uh, what I will say, uh, Patients above 50, I think, is what says the American Headache Society with a new onset of headache that, uh, that we need to, you know, explore further. I will say the primary thing that maybe we can, can come to mind could be uh, temporal arteritis, for example. But you, we know already how to do neurofascial pain setting the work of, right? We need to look for, uh, uh, well, the obvious, right, the temporal arteries. But, you know, if, uh, if the patient has mandibular claudication, if um, uh, the patient has any visual disturbances. So it's good to, to think about that. Um, another thing that I will say uh, will be important to look would be any headache that changes with position, positional headaches. So if, if the patient reports to us that uh, if there are headaches that could be due to changes in intracranial pressure, high or low. So the patient reports to us that, you know, um, as soon as I stand up, I feel, you know, a headache. And as soon as I lie down, I feel much better. And this could be maybe a spontaneous intracranial hypertension that needs to be explored further. 
Also, you know, if it's done the fundoscopic exam in the eye to look for papilla edema, to see if it's an inflammation of the optic nerve, because if it is, you know, needs to be, that it can tell us that maybe it could be intracranial, intracranial hypertension. And, uh, and then we need to, uh, to be explored further too, or, you know, with some imaging, if it's something there compressing uh, an intracranial uh, mass or something compressing that area. Um, what else? So um, in regards to idiopathic intracranial hypertension, that can be in, you know, finding women that maybe they're a bit overweight, they can have some symptoms very similar to tension-type headache or, or migraine. So I will say those things, If I, I hope I recall all the red flags, but those things, you know, that to let you think that you need to be explored this further. Best person, you know, in cases is you have a doubt, you can um, look for a uh, headache practice, a neurologist specializing in headache medicine in your area or other uh, uh, physician, medical practitioner that has this extra extra skill or a neurologist to do a full workup so you don't miss anything. And again, you can do your medical consultation and also, you know, write your findings and you can suggest if it's any imaging or anything else, or at least that, you know, you do your, your service at that moment when you find these red flags. So we were talking before how uh, it's very common for orofacial pain patients to complain about headaches. So, and I know that one of your areas of research of interest is precisely that comorbidity between temporomandibular disorders and headaches. So could you share with us a little bit what uh, research have you conducted in that regard and what have you learned about that their comorbidity between TMD and, and headache disorders? So... As we know, um, the, in the TMD population, the most common primary disorder that we found is migraine. And, uh, and we know that the presence of, of TMD in a migraineur can exacerbate the frequency and severity of the headache disorder. And potentially that could even help to the progression of chronic migraine. So that is very important. And as you mentioned, yeah, we. I think, you know, we have seen already several patients uh, in our patient population with this comorbidity. So when I started to explore this, uh, that I was interested in is because uh, when I was doing my postdoctoral, you know, was like the boom, it was at that time was 2006, when uh, they were trying to, to figure out about the CRP as the new target for, for migrant, right? A cleaner target or safer target. So. So I asked the question if CRP would be, it would be, it would have a role in temporomandibular disorders. Already we know from bad recessal that that was, uh, CRP has an involvement in musculoskeletal pain and also from the work of Paul, Paul, Dor, uh, Paul Doran that CRP was present in temporomandibular joint as well as in the trigeminal uh, ganglion. So from that, uh, we develop a model as a surrogate, preclinical model as a surrogate of TMD where we injected complete France adjuvant that is an inflammatory substance in the masseter muscle of, of mice to, in, to induce, you know, nociceptive painful, you know, behavior. So we were able to see when we block CRP with a CRP receptor antagonist, 
these uh, nociceptive grooming patterns that these animals presented decreased significantly, as well as the activation of the levetrogeminal nucleus caudalis that we know is the relay of all the nociceptive information that comes from the craniofacial area, right? So that was interesting because that told us, well, you know, yeah, CRP has, has a role in, in temporomandibular disorders, right? That should merit exploration. So we just published on, I think, October in the journal, uh, in the British Journal of Pharmacology, uh, explore furthermore this comorbidity because we do see it in the clinic. We know it exists, but you know, we need to give, to understand how, how these patterns are related and if they have any commonality mechanisms because we have two disorders, right? Team musculoskeletal and headache is neurovascular. Two disorders with different etiologies, but, um, but we have the commonality, right? That are needed by the trigeminal system. Anyway, so very in a model that we use, that is commonly used to study migraine, and this is, is a model that uses electrophysiology, and it's used to uh, um, screen for migraine abortives, abortives and, and preventives. We use this model. We were able to see in this headache model that the presence of masseteric inflammation, we use the same, we injected uh, complete transalgivan in the masseter muscle of these were rats. They had the capability to activate the heminovascular neurons. So we have a structure innervated by B3, okay? The masseter. That inflammation was able to activate a trigeminovascular neuron that we have characterized in a very in this, in this headache model that responds to headache stimuli, so to speak. Only that present. We didn't do anything in the dura mater. From the masseter, this neuron got activated, got synthesized. So that was very interesting to see that influence because we do see it in the clinic. And so we block it with CRP, that sensitization decrease. Moreover, just to finalize, uh, we know that CRP, calcitonin-G-related peptide, is a key molecule in migraine, is a trigger for migraine that is used as a clinical research setting. In this model, we add CRP plus the, 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 the masseter inflammation component and really exacerbated much more fire uh, up this trigeminovascular neuron. Things that we see in the clinic too. So, this was very interesting because post make us think that CRP is a molecular link between migraine and TMD, and maybe could be a good attractive uh, target to treat body disorders when we have in this patient population. Of course, you know, depending on the case, right? Not all the not all uh, treatments. Uh, it's not like an algorithm, right? Not all not the same treatment will work for everyone. But that was interesting to see. So um, we have. Uh, other things coming that we're exploring uh, about this comorbidity. But just to mention that our lab is interested in neuroimmune mechanisms and nitroxidative species mechanisms in, in orofacial pain disorders, trigeminal neuropathic pains and headache. And of course, drug discovery, target discovery. And also, uh, in the, and also we're interested in uh, non-pharmacological uh, ways of management pain. But as we just published last month, I think hopefully now it's online, uh, a study that we show how nitroxidative species, right, like waste products of our body, 
in this case is peroxynitrate, that has been shown to be involved in pain states, also has an involvement in migraine. And that is very interesting type of thing, like, wow, like a phenomenon of oxidation, right? Uh, and how could be beneficial to, to target this cascade of events. So I hope I didn't talk a lot about the stuff. <laughs> no, that is really fascinating. So we are certainly looking forward to any results that, that you and your lab can, can come up with. That, that's really fascinating. So uh, going back again to, you know, that overlap sometimes with headaches and orofacial pain, uh, how can we, in the orofacial pain practice, what tips could you give us on how to establish a differential diagnosis for headaches that can be felt in orofacial structures? I think it's a great question. And now, I think we we have the advantage that now we have the International Classification of Orofacial Pain, the first edition that I think was only published in January 2020 that is going to help us to do this. I think in number five in the classification talks about uh, orofacial pain uh, characteristics of uh, primary headache disorders. So that is something that can can help us uh, with this. So I think as a tip, um, the first thing the practitioner should do, you know, when you uh, have your interview and you have and you find your chief complaint to start to dissect that right so first we need to think about uh, let's say the patient is coming to us okay localization of pain how interesting that you know for this type of headache disorders that can resemble pain pain in the face that normally a headache will be present in the v1 distribution right behind your eye or C1 and C2 in your cervical area, but wow, you know, the patient is presenting pain in B2 and B3, and also this is important for the patient to understand that that headache is not a headache. You know, it's like you have a headache in your face. So the B2 pain that a patient can present could come from the innervation of the dura, of the anterior floor of the nervous meningitis medius. So that would make sense why sometimes pain can be, neurovascular pain can be felt there. And for B3, we know that in um, uh, during neurosurgery, patients that are conscious, if you touch the dura close to the blood vessels, can refer to any distribution of the trigeminal nerve, B1, B2, or B3. So that will make sense. So the first thing to do will say, chief complaint, look for the quality of pain. If the quality of pain is neurovascular, so throbbing, pounding, rhythmic, stabbing, uh, in addition to that, to talk about, to explore about the duration as well as concomitant symptoms. So for the duration of, of these headaches, we know that migraine, and in this case will be orofacial migraine, right? That also I think is the way it's written in the International Classification of Orofacial Pain Disorders, orofacial migraine. Now the duration will be uh, I think up to 72 hours. So to, to check for this patient, they have it has this pattern that the pain, if they don't take anything right, could last three days, disappears, and then comes back. And of course, if the pain is reflecting in an area where teeth, we need to rule out if it's any odontogenic cause, since those pains can be also throbbing. And also there are other headaches that can be resembled pain in the face that will be like the trigeminal autonomic cephalalgias that I think they 
this new classification, call it a tribunal autonomic or a partial pain, if I recall. So for that, the duration, for example, cluster, I think is from 15 to eight, 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 uh, 180 minutes, if I recall. So it's eight attacks per day to check that if the facial pain of your patient has that, in addition, you know, to the quality of pain. Uh, um, for paroxysmal hemicrania, I think it's from five to 30 minutes, if I recall, so five attacks per day. So try to find those bolts of attacks during that the patient is presenting uh, uh, together with the pain that the patient is presenting. Another thing that I, uh, that I would like to that is that um, for the for cluster headache, to remember that also, you know, patients can present this type of pain in the mandible. Paroxysmal hemicrania, some, I had a patient that had pre presented pain in the preauricular area, in the ear and, you know, the joint, for example. So those type of things. I mean, in addition to the duration, of course, concomitant symptoms. So check for nausea, phonophobia, photophobia, that increase with physical activity, and of course, with autonomic phenomena, right? With all the trigonal autonomic cephalalgia. So if you see in few words, to transfer the symptomatology that you find in International Classification of Headache Disorders, that now we have the new classification, International Classification of Orofacial Pain, to the orofacial area. I think also this new classification of orofacial pain says is the same characteristics of the primary headache disorder without the head pain. So that helps us, you know, to do, to make the diagnosis. Um, just to mention something, the, the, um, the, the Sankt uh, syndrome, Sankt and Suna, the, the short lasting neurology form uh, headache with uh, conjunctival, and, uh, conjunctival injection and tearing and the one that has autonomic phenomena. Normally, at least in my experience, I haven't seen it in B2 and B3. I have seen two in my life, and really the autonomic phenomena is very marked on the patients. Sometimes they have been diagnosed as trigeminal neuralgia. But interestingly, uh, different than trigeminal neuralgia, uh, trigeminal neuralgia has this refractory period, and this one's not. But also the pain is, they, uh, they describe it as, um, I, uh, a sawtooth pattern of pain. So the pain comes in bolis, ta, 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 ta. I wish I could show in a graph, but doesn't go back to baseline. Very different than the spikes that you see in or that the patient feels in trigeminal neuralgia. So I hope I didn't go very far from your question, but just, you know, to have in your mind, you make the differential diagnosis, the characteristics do not go together with musculoskeletal. The characteristics do not go well together with neuropathic pain. I understand that stabbing, burning, sometimes some trigeminal autonomic cephalagias will present the symptomatology, but will not present autonomic, trigeminal neuralgia will not present autonomic phenomena, or at least, you know, the most classical one will not. So transfer those to the orofacial area, and that will help you with your diagnosis. 
Yeah, that's that's really helpful. It helps you clarify for sure. So talking about management, we have witnessed in the last few years, right, and you alluded to that in some of your research, that there's this development of these new therapeutic approaches to headache medicine. So can you tell us a little bit more about these new therapies and how effective have they demonstrated to be? Yes. Um, we are living really in a new era for migrant therapeutics. And if we think a little bit of the past, I think it was in the 90s. I don't think none of us were doing yet orofacial pain, but anyway, in the 90s uh, was when Dr. Lars Edvinson and Peter Godsby demonstrated that the calcitonin gene-related peptide was a key molecule for migraine pathophysiology, right? That was released during a migraine attack. So you can see that took uh, around 20, 20, well, very, well, almost 20 something years to really uh, see a successful translation from bench to the clinical side. So it's very, it's very exciting and we're able to, to live it and see it. So yes, we have new classes of medications that are very exciting. And, uh, and these are specific for, for migraine. So and most of them will be for the prevention of migraine. You see, before we didn't have uh, a clear preventive, but now we have uh, the CRP monoclonal antibodies that are taking care of this. In the past, we have some anticonvulsants, cyclic antidepressants, different type of, class of medications that the primary indication was not headache. But now we have one we have for headache. So. We have the CRP monoclonal antibodies. Uh, we have the CRP, uh, the small molecule uh, CRP receptor antagonists. And we have uh, the 5-HT1F agonists that are the beatens. So to talk briefly about the CRP monoclonal antibodies, there we have, uh, that will be uh, one, two, three, four that they are in the approved. The first one was serenumab. And then, if I recall, uh, the order correctly was uh, uh, fremanesumab, lacanesumab, and eptinesumab. And this class of medication has developed for the prevention of migraine. I think erenumab and lacanesumab are approved for um, prevention of episodic and chronic, and from uh, SUMAP only for chronic migraine, as well as Galcanesumab also is approved for the treatment of episodic cluster headache. Uh, these medications are shown to be um, with good tolerability, low uh, side effect profile, and also, you know, since they're injectables, uh, for example, talking about uh, excluding Eptinesumab, that is IV. But the other ones, you know, it's a subcutaneous injection that gives you a, a long half-life, so that will help you with patient compliance. We have also uh, now, you know, the CRP receptor antagonists. We know that for, as an, for abortives of migraine, we know that we had before the triptans right, but we couldn't use, it, uh, use them for for some patients. And of course, if they have cere cerebrovascular disease, so far, cardiovascular contraindications. So these, have, these ones have been shown to show, uh, have not reported any, any cardiovascular or hepatoxicity warnings. And we have the GPANs that will be Obrogipant and Remegipant. That's a good option for 
medications to abort a migraine attack. And, uh, and we have this tryptan class, the 5-HT1F receptor agonist, that, uh, that the 5-HT1F receptor is not found in the vasculature. So this will be this type of medications. This is lasmitidine. It's FDA approved uh, for the management of uh, uh, as an abortive of migraine. And, uh, and has been shown promising for patients with cardiovascular risk factors. About the side effect profile of this, I haven't used it, but what I, what I you know, know from the literature can give a little bit of some sedation. And, and uh, so we need to take care about those things. But in regards to the CRP class of medications have a very good uh, tolerability and safety. In addition to non-pharmacological management, we have very cool stuff coming on, already FDA approved. So I'm sure you have heard about the new devices for neuromodulation for migraine management. That is a super attractive approach as a non-pharmacological management that you can use in patients that um, in pregnancy or patients with medication overuse headache, for example. So. Uh, we have the non-invasive vagal stimula uh, stimulation that is also a very successful uh, translation from bench to bedside that is approved for the management of acute and chronic migraine and I think also for cluster. And uh, our lab with Dr. Simon Ackerman, uh, we were able to give some of the preclinical data for this, so that was very cool. Um, in addition is that I haven't used, I don't have experience, but I know about the supraorbital stimulation device, but I think, you know, the patient put it in the, in, in, in the forehead. It looks like, uh, I think it's the one that looks like Wonder Woman. That also has been shown to be successful. Uh, the single pulse transcranial magnetic stimulation and, um, and the remote electrical neuromodulation that is a device that the patient can put in their arm to help them abort uh, a headache disorder. And of course, for these uh, are contraindicated in patients that have uh, cochlear implants or pacemakers, for, uh, for example. But as you can see in these movies, since 2019, like if I recall, we have this boom, you know, all these new devices and medications that is a, a great, a great uh, armamentarium for us, right, to offer to our patients. In addition, just to mention something else in neuromodulation, it's something interesting to talk about them because maybe, you know, the patient can use it independently as a device or to have it in their toolbox, you know. A patient maybe can have medication for migraine to abort and attack, but also can use one of these devices. So, yeah, we have a lot of things, you know, to try and... Uh, and, hope, and looks like, you know, they are serving, serving our patient population. Yeah, it's been really exciting to see all these yeah. new uh -huh. tools that we didn't have available just a few years back coming in. And, and they seem to be somewhat helping patients. So, so that's, that's fantastic for us. Um, so I wanted to ask you, you know, about all these approaches. When we go into the clinic and, and then we are in our clinic, uh, how have you been incorporating these new uh, therapeutic approaches in, in your clinical practice? Maybe specifically more uh, the 
CGRP medication. What protocol do you follow to recommend these uh, on your headache patients? I will tell you, ideally, you know, um, we have, a, for example, for the CGRP, uh, monoclonal antibodies, we, we have finally a, a clear target. Of course, you know, we need to, for example, in UMAB, we need to be careful of constipation, do not prescribe any patients with uh, uncontrolled uh, hypertension, even though it looks like the findings were not significant. But, you know, like in everything, we need to be careful, right? But it's a very clean target. And if you compare to the other side effect profiles from other medications that we have, uh, would be better our first goal, not to try. So... And, and these uh, pharmaceutical companies, at least now, they, they are giving like uh, a program that the patient can join, so the copay is not that expensive. However, however, I think uh, sometimes they, we need to show the insurance in some insurances that the patient needs to fail to prevent this, so sometimes three, before you start to use these new medications, and this is very unfortunate, right? So that would be one of the things that that uh, has not, at least in my opinion, led us, or at least, in a, you know, to really utilize better, you know, or, or the way that I, that, that I would like to offer to my patients. Um, what else? Um, for the, another thing that I, that I do in the clinic, um, well, you know, for, Neuromodulatory devices, you know, I offer to the patients to see, you know, we have, all of us, we have, you know, the patients that they don't want to use, don't want to take uh, medications. That would be another a good option to explore. Um, but at least for the new migraine therapeutics, I think the roadblock is the, the, insu the, the insurance. What else I would like to say? Um, also, you know, in addition to pharmacology and, and and neuromodulatory devices. I have patients that have done very well with uh, riboflavin, vitamin B2, 400 milligrams a day. We know it's an antioxidant. Side effects, well, at least by, by as far as we know, the pee is going to be colored yellow. <laughs> of course, you mentioned to your face, don't get scared. But, you know, there are different things that we can utilize, you know, for our patients. Um, what else I think I could say about in regards to these new medications? So uh, for the, the GPAN class, they are very successful, and the patients really appreciate that uh, they could see the difference between the triptan that they used to take with this one. And I guess because they don't feel the pressure that sometimes the triptan used to cause for some of them in the chest. But... Um, I think at least with my with my experience as 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 of now with these new class of medications, it's exciting and it's nice to see when the patient comes to us that oh you know I feel much better or my headaches you know have decreased. So I think we are, uh, as I say, this is a new era of of, of uh, for migraine management, and I just um, hope that. The insurance is easier because I don't like, for example, you already know something that is going to help your patient, right? 
or, or will be a cleaner target as these things are, but uh, I need to use another preventive, uh, you know, that I need to show them that has failed. So actually, hopefully I can prescribe the drug that I, that I think will be cleaner for them to use, so to speak. So it has been frustrated, but I, you know, it's, and I think you, you have experienced this, right? The constant battle. But here we are, the warriors. <laughs> so going a little bit step back as well, another therapeutic approach that was introduced almost a decade ago and it's currently being used very uh, routinely for headache management is the infiltration with onabotulin toxin A. So uh, what are your thoughts about that therapeutic approach and in which patients should we be considering this type of therapy? Well, we know that botulinum toxin is if they approve for the prevention uh, of chronic migraine. I think it's a good approach to use in patients that you have a lot of musculoskeletal component accompanied to the migraine, as well as uh, patients that have been refractory to preventive treatment. I think patients uh, that have failed to, I think it's maybe, uh, don't quote me if I'm wrong, but it's two to three preventives for failure to consider, you know, or at least maybe the insurance companies that I'm thinking now, that you know, to consider botulinum toxin. But I think it's another way, you know, that we have in our armamentarium if the patient doesn't want to take a medication or the medication can have caused side effects. Um, I, right now, currently, um, so I'm the chair of the, of the section of the TMD, cervical spine and orofacial pain in the American Headache Society. And I'm working currently with the section of the procedural headache from the American Headache Society with Dr. Paul Matthew. We are putting together with a team of our, of our, of some of our members, a new consensus for the use of botulinum toxin uh, since, you know, it's used for migraine, we have the migraine protocol, there's 31, I think, specific points, but uh, a consen uh, expert consensus for the use of botulinum toxin in TMD, since it's not in the approved, but as you know, some people are using it, right? Uh, it's not first line, but we're going to give an expert consensus. But as I said, you know, patients refractory to treatment, the bottom line for botulinum toxin patients, refractory to treatment for preventives is a great option. If you find in your examination uh, a big component of muscular, uh, muscle pain, it would be a good option too. I think, you know, we have, as you can see, we have a very big, has increased so much, right? Our therapeutic armamentarium to offer to our patients. And of course, we need to be careful, right? If the patient has any neuro, neuro, neuromuscular disorder of um, myasthenia gravis, uh, those type of disorders, yes, we shouldn't be using botulinum toxin. Mm -hmm. uh, so what about then those infiltration of uh, botulinum toxin for the management of temporal mandibular disorders? What are your thoughts? Do we, do we have evidence that they work? What, what, what are your your so, Okay, so I, I wouldn't like to say much, so stay tuned for our expert consensus. But yes, we have evidence that they are useful. Uh, but um, it should not be your first line. You know, should be, you need to think about to use them when, you know, conserve, uh, our regular standard therapy 
has not uh, um, has not be has been refractory, and we're gonna be uh, publishing about why we're saying that and what is the evidence is, tell, is telling us about that. So we are certainly looking forward to that yeah. publication. We are going to be eager. <laughs> I don't want to jinx it. Yeah, that's absolutely. <laughs> we are eager to 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 learn more about about that expert consensus for sure. Thank you <laughs> for sharing. So, we talked about this a little bit before. You mentioned it. Uh, uh, in patients with orofacial pain, it's not uncommon at all for them to be using, you know, analgesics and says that they take over the counter. So. What, how can the use of this over-the-counter medication impact their headache complaint? And what is your recommended strategy if we know that our patient might be abusing these over-the-counter medications? I, that is an excellent question, yes. So we have heard about medication overuse headache, right? And the International Classification of Headache Disorder describes describe that as patients who have a persistent headache who, which in association with medication overuse, develop uh, a new headache type or these persistent headache are exacerbated, meets the, meets the criteria for medication overuse headache. And this headache can be present for more than 15 days. So you see very, the chronicity signature here. And will be in association that the patient will be take, was taking 10 to 15 days of over-the-counter non-narcotic analgesics, uh, triptans, you know, just to give a few examples to try to, to manage this headache. Uh, I think the criteria also says that for more than three months, but usually will resolve after the, the offending overused drug is stopped. And yes, as you mentioned, you know, patients with headache who also take pain for other reasons besides headache could, uh, could, uh, could contribute to the, these medications could contribute to the risk of, uh, of medication overuse headache. So what we can, what we can do. So when we have a patient with an orofacial pain complaint, let's say the classical temporomandibular disorder, for example, or some muscle, elevator muscle pain. Uh, when it comes to us, we do again, we dissect our chief complaint, right? And see if the patient presents headache and the type of headache if it's a primary headache disorder or not, and also to see if this headache is controlled. Because we do see two headache patients that come to us already that they're taken care by another practitioner and their regimen for headache management is helpful. So if we, if we detect you know, that the patient has, let's say, migraine and is well controlled, I think or at least in my experience, if I start uh, my official pain protocol for TMD, sub-diet, moist heat, and I decide to add an anti-inflammatory, I haven't seen has been a lot of risk, but when the headache is well controlled. But if in doubt, or if it's more comfortable, to you, you, you could do also, you know, if the patient is uh, trigger point injections, or the patient needs uh, to be referred for physical therapy, so do not use uh, pharmacological management for them. And of course, you know, to start to do all the other tools that we have for to treat temporomandibular disorders, like uh, from the biopsychosocial model, et cetera, et cetera. So not necessarily we need to use uh, medication. So 
when the patient comes to us all over the place with headache and also is popping pills because of the TMD disorder or also for the headache, we need to clean the house. So the best thing will be, yeah, as you know, will be logical, right, to stop the offending medication. If it's an OTC, uh, ibuprofen, uh, naproxen, acetaminophen, I think is one also. To take your tapering down, but you need to say to the patient that it's going to be miserable for a week or so. And you can add a preventive medication there. Or even if the patient, or even you want to be even safer, safer, you can add a neuromodulator if the patient has a possible as a chronic, um, a chronic migraine. But anyway, if you can, you can start a preventive at that time. Or also you can utilize a preventive, for example, if the patient has severe muscular uh, myofascial pain. Uh, in addition to, you know, to, in the meantime, you send them for physical therapy, you can put it on a tricyclic that maybe can help as a preventive of the headache and, as a, and help also for the muscle pain components. So you need to, you know, to figure it out, depending on the needs of your patient, your decision in if you're going to be prescribing a medication or not. But preventive, so you check in the literature in the time there uh, to clear them up of the offending drug are very successful. What, is, what else to say about that? Um, um, so I, I, I will say yes, you know, you, you could, uh, you can utilize now the new, the new pharmacotherapies that we have to help this patient. Oh, yeah, before I forgot. So if your patient is taking opioids or if your patient is taking, uh, what is the one that they prescribe so much? And I still, I, I, I thought I saw a time that I stopped seeing this medication with Talvital, I think, if I correct. Anyway, that needs a more specific taper down. And, and I'm sure sometimes you have heard that there are patients that need to be put in hospital to have the clearance. So that will be better, you know, managed with a medical professional. If a patient like this, you know, needs uh, the, the clearance of the medication, a serious experience of the medication due to the type and the time, the type and the time they have been taking it. I hope I answer your question. Oh yeah, absolutely, you did, and, and I agree. Sometimes it's very hard to tell the patient mm -hmm. that the medication that seems to be helping with their pain actually could be causing more more headache or more more headache pain. So, um, and that goes leads to my next question. So, how can we educate and empower our patients to have an active role in their headache management? Um, so this, this is a very nice question because, you know, we have been talking a lot of pharmacology and all those things, but we are more, we're more than that. Like our body, yes, we have an interesting target, but we're, we're more than that, right? I would say to empower them to get to know themselves. So let me explain this a little bit. And I think as practitioners in anything we do, we try to give power to the, our patients to understand the disorder that is happening to them, to them, right? So first with education, right? Why this headache? Yes, feels horrible, but you let them know that, you know, after you rule out different causes, that is a it's primary, is a disorder of the brain, a primary disorder of their brain, but that they don't need to be, feels horrible, but it's nothing worrisome. 
Okay. And also, you know, to give them like, uh, to try to teach them to focus in, in their lifestyle. What is making this headache happen? For example, we know it could be hereditary. We know it could be a lot of, a lot of things, but just to see if they can catch, if they have any, for example, any triggers, let's start with triggers, any triggers of these headaches. So the topic of triggers is very interesting. And uh, I give a, a lecture in Spanish in the American Migrant Foundation about, uh, about these triggers, you know, for patients, because it's, 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 it's a lot of power in this too, to, the patient to, to get to know what may be causing their headaches. So, you know, uh, we have premonitory symptoms that can perceive the headache even 72 hours. Because, you know, Headache has different phases. Not all of them are related to pain. But these premonitory symptoms are purely hypothalamic information because they, they is uh, about homeostasis, balance. They deal with uh, hydration, hunger, sleep, circadian rhythms. Kind of like in a snapshot, the hypothalamus is very cool. Anyway, so... so um, Maybe sometimes those premonitory symptoms that the patient feels tired or thirsty or craving is making them have that, uh, you know, the craving for sugar or chocolate or wine. And not necessarily is the wine causing their headache. I, I, I hope I, I, I try to explain myself here. But anyway, doesn't matter what it started before the, the, the egg or the hen or vice versa or the chicken of the hand, right? So first to detect the triggers. If it's anything in regards to food, if it's climate changes, if it's uh, that they didn't sleep well, if they didn't eat well, or, or even stressful situations, that is not to stay focused in the pain, but in addition to the diary, to check for those things. It was any situation or, or any uh, a stressful situation, or they didn't uh, drink enough water, or they didn't sleep their, their regular time. That is very important because really the, the way that the migraine brain works, I will say it's very delicate, very, uh, it's very susceptible. So these things could also empower the patient to really to get to know themselves. And also to maybe to make some decisions in regards life changes, you know, that really will help their overall health. I think, you know, maybe now we have here a lot about self-care for us as, as, primary, as, us as primary care providers, right? Well, as uh, orofacial pain providers, we need to take care of ourselves. But for these patients, also it's very critical. Just to make a story short, I had a patient that... Uh, that I think was several years ago that she had a uh, migraine with Aurora, very severe, getting to chronic, no, you know, uh, that, that was a prime, was primary, of course. And, uh, and she did diaries and take the diet. She was very diligent in trying to find the triggers. She has some triggers. One uh, was uh, some specific fruits. I think was a banana, can you imagine? And I think also chocolate was a trigger. I think even avocados, like very interesting uh, fruits that normally you wouldn't think. 
But then the main trigger was stress and was work. And used to, it's because I have this fight with my boss. It's because this and that. And I told her, you know what? Maybe your body is telling us that you really need to, to do serious changes. Think about it. So I, I think I stopped seeing her for a while and then came back and she changed her job. <laughs> and then the pain, the headache went away. It was more manageable, right? So that tells you a lot of how we really need to take of ourselves, our balanced system. If it's meditation, we're talking about ourselves, talking about our patients. If it's meditation, mindfulness, something that the patient can do to, to, um, to unwind if it's a stress, as well as, you know, different diet, uh, diet uh, regimens that maybe they can have to, you know, to try to avoid a headache, uh, the, the headache disorder. Um, what else I would like uh, to say? Just to, to make the patient, you know, understand that. And also, you know, that the patient knows when to take the medication. I'm sure you have had also this history that patients were prescribed triptans and they say they didn't work, but actually they didn't take them at the right time. So it's not because the medication didn't work. It's because the patient didn't take it at the right time. So also to, to understand that they understand the regimen that you're going to put them on. Uh, what else? But I think the, the bottom line for to, to empower our patients is that they really get to know themselves and, uh, and what is the triggers and what can precipitate and what other life ch lifestyle changes. Not I'm saying that, you know, this, if they work stressful just to Huawei, but you, you understand the idea to see how they can balance to try to find that inner center themselves. Yeah, that is really important. Absolutely. So in this last few minutes, Dr. Romero, that we have left, I always like to ask if there's anything else that you would like to share with our audience. And, and, and what are your thoughts on, on how do you envision the future of this field developing? Um, so, so, you know, as you can see, we have very exciting things that that are coming. And the future, at least for the in the field of headache, I hope that in addition to pharmacological targets that now we're having and there and there are more to come, also that also we take care uh, to the non-pharmacological management for this type of patients, that we can create a good uh, toolbox for our patients. And I think already we have it. I maybe, you know has been conversations about personalized medicine. That in the field of headache, I, I, I'm not quite sure how we'll be working, but you know, for the field of pain, already we have been uh, discussing about that. But just I hope um, that, uh, I, I think already we're in a very good beginning, you know, from a new era on how, how uh, the headache field uh, is uh, is developing, and also will be interesting to see to find evidence base for other uh, therapies such as you know acupuncture for headache or nutrition for headache. That now we start to have, I think, will be very powerful to see because some of these therapies are also very helpful for our patients. So I guess you know I'm very hopeful that already we are seeing very great stuff wonderful communication from bench to bedside to the clinical side already. So 
I think just uh, we're going to be seeing uh, more, more cool things moving forward. Thank you, Dr. Romero. This was fantastic. Thank you for sharing your knowledge and your expertise with us. It's been a pleasure to have you. I thank you so much for the invitation, Isabel. And I hope my, you know, my humble knowledge, you know, I don't know everything, please, but at least, you know, that, is, that this will be useful. Thank you very much. Thank you.